the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. It's great to be in the Adelaide Hills looking at the contribution to many men and women to the Royal Australian Air Force. Today it's Group Captain, retired, Bruce Mowat. Fighter pilot, Vietnam veteran, fighter combat instructor. What a list. In 1968-69, Bruce flew Sabres operationally in Butterworth, Malaysia and in Ubon in Thailand. In 1969, he transferred to Mirages at Williamtown and also trained as a forward air controller. As a result, in 1971, Bruce was posted to Vietnam as a forward air controller flying over 10 Broncos. Returning to flying duties on Mirages, Bruce was posted to the UK for a weapons course, followed by a fighter combat instructors course at Williamtown. He then trained new fighter pilots. Bruce then had a change of pace and did an exchange tour with the United States Air Force flying A7D Corsair II aircraft out of davis Monthan Air Force Base at Tucson in Arizona. In 1977, now a squadron leader, Bruce returned to Mirages, Williamtown, and in 1979-1980, his skills were used to set up the RAAF Weapons School. In 1981, he completed the RAAF Staff College and was promoted to Wing Commander. Then came a long association with F-18 Hornets. In 1982 to 1985, Bruce joined the F-A-18 Hornet Acquisition Project and in 1986 became the commanding officer of the 1st RAAF Operational Hornet Squadron. In 1988, he returned to Canberra as a group captain to run the FA-18 Hornet project. And finally, in mid-1990, he commanded the new Hornet base in Tyndall in the Northern Territory. Bruce left the RAAF in August of 1994 after more than 30 years and joined the world of private enterprise. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to someone with such an illustrious history in the RAAF. Bruce, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you, Gareth. Uh, Bruce, can you tell me, I mean, the obvious question is, when and why did you join the RAAF? Yeah, I became fascinated with aeroplanes as a kid, as a lot do. <clears throat> Excuse me, my, my father had been in the Air Force at the end of WW2, and he inculcated this love of aeroplanes you know he'd keep pointing them out and all that sort of thing uh, but the, the really crucial moment for me I can remember I was uh, nine I think we went to the Sydney showground we were living in Sydney by this time and it was an expo and we were walking towards what was the French pavilion and I still see it clearly and to the left of it was parked this saber Air Force Sabre Jet and uh, something else as well but I remember seeing this in the evening light and it just basically fascinated me and I remember saying to dad I said dad I think I've got to join the Air Force and fly that and he said 
Oh, well, if you do, mate, he said they'd be long gone by the time you get in the Air Force. <laughs> uh, but uh, from that moment on, really, uh, I, it was in the blood. And yeah. uh, I, I couldn't shake it, not that I tried to. Uh, and the next hurdle, of course, was how do you basically make it happen? And my old man used to say, look, don't join the Air Force as a pilot. He said, it's just a short service commission. After six or seven years, they say you're done and away you go. He said, I want you to go to university and get a degree. And I ended up going to a good high school, you know, that my father, I owe him a great deal for going to this uh, Sydney Boys High School in Sydney. And uh, I remember at the end of third year, I saw an advertisement for the RAF, join the Air Force and fly and get a science degree. Uh And I showed it to my dad. I said, well, Dad, how could you say no to that? You know? And he said, oh, probably bloody can't, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) And so I went from there. You actually went to my competition at school because I went to Canterbury Boys High School Ah, and Sydney Boys High School. We we were in competition with each other, but we actually had an ATC, which I joined. Did you have an ATC at Sydney Boys High? No, no, (laughs) no. In fact, I had to travel across Sydney to get there. It was, uh, you know, it was quite a bit of it's still one of the best things that... uh, my family did for me, my mum and dad, yeah. uh, was, you know, making me follow the path to get into Sydney High because it really was, it, it was as good and fine an education as you could get. Yeah, uh, that, that, that is very, very true. Very true, Bruce. I, I, I am interested. Did you ever get to fly a sabre? Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> I did indeed. In fact, that I, I was very proud of that fact, and I used to rub my father's nose in it quite often. But uh, I flew the sabre for a few years, as it turned out, and I flew it operationally in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia and Thailand. Uh, yeah. So I was, you know, I was very fortunate, and it was a wonderful aeroplane, and it didn't disappoint me one bit. That was the what would have been late 1968, 1969 thereabouts. Exactly. 1968, 1969, I think I did my course at the end of 1967, so, uh, yeah. And what was the course like in your getting started in the RAAF, Bruce? I mean, tell us about those training days. The I started at the RAF Academy, which is where you got the degree, and uh, <clears throat> after two years, I really, uh, academically, I wasn't, if you like, mastering as much as I could have, or should have, uh, and... I'd done militarily okay, and so they offered me the chance to go to basic flying training school, which was all, all already at Point Cook as well, also at Point Cook. And I, it was the most exciting experience, the most exciting prospect. You know, every moment was something that you absolutely lapped up. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't think I was terribly confident, at those at that stage, I mean, a lot of people used to fail the course, but for me, it was that was where I wanted to be. I realised at the time this is where I want to be. I've got to make it happen. I've got to make it work. That's that's it's it's so good when you actually find something that you really love and yeah. it works. This is to be work. It becomes it becomes a hobby. It becomes fun. Yeah, I, there were times when you you'd have to pinch yourself to say. 
am I really here? And I found it motivating in the sense that now that I'm here, for heaven's sakes, don't blow it, you know? In the training, before you actually go to Butterworth and, and get into Sabres, what kinds of aircraft did you fly in and what, how would you compare them? The first aircraft that we you know, did our basic training in was the uh, Windjill, which was a piston engine uh, aeroplane. Wonderful machine to learn on, side-by-side uh, -side seating, very basic. Uh, it taught you as much as you needed to know about the basics of aviation, that's for sure. And then the second half of the course, which was in Western Australia at Pierce, uh, was in the Vampire Jet, which was also well, pretty much a World War II vintage aeroplane, but because of its, if you like, fundamental, its basic nature, it was a terrific aeroplane to learn on. So at the end of pilot's course, graduating with your wings, which for me was the middle of 67, uh, you really felt that you were well-equipped uh, we had a fair few flying hours. We felt we had great instructors. Uh, we'd learnt on really basic quality, not voiceless aeroplanes. Uh, so we were in pretty good shape to go from there. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit ironic that your father says to you, you'll never, th those planes won't, the Sabre won't be there when, when you get through. Uh, and then you get into the Sabres. But even more ironic is that you you closed the Sabres down, yeah, did you not? Yeah, ba basically I was one of the, in fact, uh, I was in the last operational squadron, that's right. And uh, when we brought them back from Malaysia, uh, which was, I think, March 69, uh, that was the last operational squadron, we landed at Williamtown and my mum and dad were both there to see us arrive. So I've I, I got to admit, I took a lot of lot of pleasure in that it's basically saying well dad what do you reckon about that <laughs> <laughs> you you really did have the last laugh <laughs> yeah but he was very proud obviously and I, you know i think he was uh my old man didn't say a hell of a lot he was never uh overly emotional but my sister has told me subsequently that he was beside himself with pride so i'm i'm pretty pleased with that yeah that's, that's fantastic Fantastic, Bruce. Your uh, flight as far as the Laotian border with the United States Air Force, how did that come about? What was involved there? Well, the um, this is in Vietnam. Um, yes, yes. We, the area of operation that we had, we were flying OB-10s out of Da Nang and Chulai, which is in the northern part of South Vietnam. And... Our AO went all the way out to the Laotian border. And the Laotian border, that area, which is in the high country of South Vietnam, was real genuine tiger country. Um, you know, there were no lines on the ground, there were no roads, there were trails and things hidden in the jungle. But uh, we as Australians, we weren't allowed to go into Laos. <clears throat> and we had to be very careful about not going into Laos. So we could only really determine that from our map reading. And, of course, when you're in the middle of, let's say, doing an airstrike or whatever, there are times when uh, you inadvertently will wander into Laos. So whenever we did that, and luckily it wasn't on radar or anything like that, uh, we'd sneak back into South Vietnam and pretend we'd never been there. Yeah. <laughs> but was know, that... Yeah. Was that with the RAAF or was it with the, was it with USAF? It was with the USAF, uh, but we were still RAAF 
officers, but we'd been seconded as forward air controllers to the United States Air Force. So we were, for all intents and purposes, just another USAF pilot flying the missions. But, but you were flying Australian planes, were you not? No, we were flying American planes. So we were just a, a part of the United States Air Force. Uh, we flew with Americans. There were no other Australians around except there were two compatriots of mine in the, in the same place. But we were just <clears throat> uh, a couple of Australians flying for the USAF. We played by their rules. We did what they did. We were trained by them. Uh, so we had no real interface with the Royal Australian Air Force for the period of time that we were in Vietnam. Let me get it right on my head. You were still, though, in the RAAF. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, yeah. yeah. And the, the planes that you were flying that were American planes, what were they? They were OV-10 Broncos. And, uh, and I believe the OV-10 Bronco, they're endeavouring to put it back together so that it'll be in the War Memorial. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, for... Uh, some of us flew O1s, some flew O2s, and then some of us were, I think, fortunate enough to fly the OV-10. And now that it's, we've got one at the War Memorial and it's being, as you say, refurbished and put together, uh, we're, we're pretty pleased with that because it was a great, great aeroplane to do what we were doing. Did the Australian Air Force exist in this same period of time in this same combat zone? Or were uh, they in gunships? Uh, they were not in the same part of the country as we were. We had Canberra bombers based uh, uh, about 200 miles to the south and then further south down in Bung Tau, we had the helicopters and the caribous. So uh, we had no interface with uh, any Australian units as such in our part of the world. So in point of fact, during Vietnam, as far as jet fighters were concerned, it really was only the United States Air Force that were flying jets. Every, Australians were flying anything but jets. Yeah, basically that's correct. Now and then as a forward air controller, you'd obviously control the fighters that they would give you for a particular target. On rare occasions, we'd have some Canberras, some RAAF Canberras out of Phan Rang as the aircraft that we were controlling, but that was pretty rare. Okay. Um, you, you talk also about, in Vietnam, having no safety net. What did you mean by that? I, I suppose it was the whole point about uh, uh, when you put your hand up to go to Vietnam, uh, for a lot of us it was, you know, why, why are you doing that? And in our profession, you know, we were training uh, to... Uh, use fighter aircraft to defend and defend the country it's serve the country but none of us had been to war and the ultimate test I guess a lot of us felt personally was to go to war <clears throat> and see how you'd react in that situation I mean if you all of our forebears you know in World War Two and Korea they'd been through the heavy stuff and I suppose it was our opportunity or my opportunity to see how you were going to react when it was it was a genuine shooting war, yeah, uh, and there was no safety net. There was it wasn't practicing. Uh, when you were putting bombs on the target, they were real bombs, and uh, bad guys were shooting at you with real bullets. So there was no <clears throat> no pretense. There was no safety net. It was for real. So what goes through uh, a, a a defence person's mind when they're in that 
war zone when it's real it's hot what what do you feel what can you remember were you thinking or were you not thinking were you were just doing the job which which might it be it was more the latter it was more <clears throat> you were busy doing the job that's what you were concentrating on uh your survival lay in how well you did the job your success lay in how well you did your job and so that was what we did uh okay. there was no it wasn't never a matter of sitting there saying, wow, we're actually in the middle of a war. You just did what you were trained to do, and it was consuming, uh, and it used up <coughs> excuse me, all of the, if you like, your thinking time that you had available. So it was just a natural thing to be doing, and I don't think any of us reflected on it in, if you like, an emotional way. How important then was the training in providing that level of just thinking about doing your job? I How think, uh, absolutely essential. And, you know, I did my, uh, as we all did, our FAC course back in Australia uh, <clears throat> in our system, and we did it actually on Windshield aircraft. The training, I've always believed that RAF training is of the highest quality anywhere in the world when it comes to military flying. And I think that the quality of training that we had as facts and as fighter pilots was second to none. And that is the major contributor, in my view, to what it is that you're talking about. So that when you got to do it, it was a natural progression. You were well equipped to do what you had to do. And I don't want you to be modest about this, but you were mentioned in dispatches which is a great honour. Can you tell us what happened, how that occurred? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, it, there were various missions which got a little bit warmer, I suppose, than others. Uh, uh, and this particular one was uh, the weather was absolutely... I won't go into excruciating detail, but the weather was absolutely terrible. Low cloud base, uh, lots of jungle, you know. There was, uh, it, it was... Forbidding, and uh, a helicopter had been nearby and <clears throat> called me and said, "Hey, listen, we're taking some fire out of this particular area. Would you like to come and have a look?" And uh, which I did, and we all started taking fire. Uh, it was quite dark. It was you know just because of the rain, and and I thought, well, really, I've got to get some fighters in there. To cut a long story short, I got some uh, phantoms. I went north into where the weather was better, picked them up. I had them follow me underneath this cloud base. And uh, and we, you know, we were very successful and we got a whole bunch of secondary explosions. So what we found was some sort of MO or ammunition storage base for the VC slash North Vietnamese in the middle of the jungle, not far from the Laotian border as it turned out. And uh, we were able to do a fair bit of damage. So uh, we, we pretty pleased that under difficult circumstances we got uh, we got some good results and we all came out of it uh, you know smiling yep <laughs> and again was that with the USAF yes it was yep yeah was. they were US Army helicopters we did a lot of work with US Army helicopters gunships and the rest uh, the phantom aircraft and the fighters were uh, aircraft that were based in Da Nang with the United States Air Force, uh, so it was 100% American. 
we were technically as facts, we were there to support the 23rd US Army Division. And so really what they set the agenda in the sense of where the fighting was taking place was what they were requiring. Yep. And so uh, we were at their beck and call. I've spoken to so many existing and former RAF personnel who've worked with the United States of American Air Force, and they all speak so highly of the the relationship between Americans and Australians in the Air Force. Was that your experience, and how did you find it? Absolutely. Um, we have a particularly strong bond, and I guess I'll always be a, uh, an advocate of the Americans and, and working with them and flying with them and their military prowess. Uh, our relationship was just terrific. They treated you uh, like one of them. We treated them like one of them. They appreciated us for, I think, some of the skills that we brought to the, uh, to the situation. Uh, they were wonderful to work with. They were terrific. There was never, ever uh, any sense that uh, you weren't a fully valued member of the team, as for all of them. Yeah, well, that's that's fantastic. There's a film that I, I can remember seeing for the first time uh, and I loved called Top Gun. Ah, yeah. Back in uh, 19, uh, or back at 76 in 1973, uh, you were in the fighter, you were a fighter combat instructor and it was very much like Top Gun, only better. How would, you, how, would you, how would you explain that? Just because I admire the Americans, that doesn't mean, you know, you, I think we're, we're good critics of each other, put it that way. And we've never been afraid in whatever theatre uh, to criticise or to support each other. And um, our, the American training system, and I obviously served in America for a while, but they train a lot of people. And therefore, uh, their, if you like, mean level of capability is probably a little less than ours. However, their best are very, very good. And, and our course is a more personalised course in the sense that we deal with the individual. The Americans tend to look at their students as just another number. Uh, so that's where it's a little, it's a little more personal in our case little more impersonal for the Americans, which is why I say that our Top Gun course or our FCI course was of a very high quality. And that's not to say that their equivalent was not of a high quality, but we were pretty proud of ours, put it that way. Yeah. Well, let's, let's be truthful. We're the best of the best. Let's be honest about this. Well, I, I can't argue with those words, yeah. I've got to say. <laughs> When you're in the fighter combat instructor, you're an instructor, you're a teacher, uh, what was it like training pilots on Mackies and the Mirages? Um, yeah, that was testing. It was a completely uh, new scene. I mean, you've got to now, if you like, uh, be a touch more attentive. You're not flying the aeroplane, but you're doing the teaching. So you've got to be two things. Firstly, you've got to be very good at what you do when you fly the aeroplane. And secondly, you can't let your guard down at any particular time. Uh, and if that student doesn't flourish under your tutelage, you've got to ask yourself, what is it that I'm not doing so well? So it's, it's very testing in the sense that you can always ask yourself, could I be doing this better? 
and uh, the performance of, when you get a good student, piece of cake, terrific. When you get a student that struggles a bit, you've got to put more effort into him uh, to get him up to the standard. So within the RAAF, do the instructors, do you uh, talk to each other about individual students and what I could do here, what I could do there? Is there a, a sharing of information among the instructors? Very much so. And in fact, I'd have to say we're talking about comparing Top Gun courses. I think that's one of the things, because we're smaller, we do a little better. Uh, we share all of the information. They don't always fly the students with the same instructor. Uh, we will sit down uh, on a regular basis and go through all the students and see how they're doing, make suggestions about what we should be trying next, whether we fly another yep. sortie. Uh, that was the key to it in so many ways, was our ability to communicate with each other as instructors so we could maximise our effect on the students. Uh, to what extent then would you would you find a student who is average and you're worried about, but then suddenly blossoms? How often did that happen? Uh, not as often as we would have liked, I suppose, but it does happen. And, and it's very, very rewarding. When you see a guy who's perhaps been low average or average and he starts to flourish, he starts to come into maturity, it is very, very satisfying. And, yep. uh, and of course, to see him ultimately graduate, you know, gives you uh, a feeling of great satisfaction. And that's, which is one of the wonderful things about being an instructor, is it can be incredibly satisfying. Yep. Uh, if you have a student that doesn't make it, that can also be incredibly disappointing. But I think we did pretty well. You've got two different strands of expertise here. Uh, Bruce, I mean, you're a fighter pilot in Vietnam, mentioned in dispatches, and then you're an instructor who is training future pilots. How do those two bands of uh, expertise compare with each other as an officer in the Air Force? It's one of the intangible things that as you gain experience as a pilot, and a part of that experience in my case, for example, was Vietnam, You that experience tends to, uh, it has a multiplier effect. That is, everything you do now has a little more credibility, it's a little easier, it's a little more effective. So if you're analytical, sufficiently analytical, you can see your performance improving through that experience that you've gleaned, and that makes your value to the students increase. Right. And how important or how much did people above you in rank assist you in your development as a member of the RAAF? One of the lovely things, and I've mentioned it a few times, I guess, is that we're a relatively small force. Uh, the RAF fighter force is relatively small. We all tend to know each other, uh, in fact, know each other very well. Uh, we socialise together. Uh, we flew together. So that ability to pass on, uh, to mentor others of your colleagues uh, was an incredible factor. I mean, the flight commanders that I worked for when I was a, a junior instructor, um, I, I have nothing but the highest praise for. Obviously, some were better than others, but generally speaking, they were the most incredibly effect, effective mentors and teachers in their own right. And so that dragged you further up the 
up the uh, experience chain and effectiveness chain. And uh, I will always value um, the way we did it and the way the RAF does it to this day. Yeah. It almost seems like there's no inter-competition within the RAAF, but rather a more a, a sense of self-promotion and helping others leg up to create an even more effective machine for the Royal Australian Air Force. True. Uh, I think you get a lot of satisfaction out of it. You know, as a team, if your performance improves and you do it through this collegiate effort, then that's very satisfying. It's okay. not to say there's not competition between the individuals, you know. That, oh, of course, yeah. of course. Uh, and then that competition, though, has to always remain healthy. Uh, what, took you back, what took you back to the United States Air Force in 1974? Uh, I was an instructor at this stage on Mirages, and uh, we used to have two or three exchange tours in the United States. And I was lucky enough to get one flying at David Swanson Air Force Base in Arizona, uh, flying A7 aircraft, and that was for two to three years. Um, so you basically, once again, just became a part of the United States Air Force. It was a varied experience. They had different ways of doing things, and that enhanced your value to the organisation for sure. Yeah, all the time you spent with the United States Air Force, thank goodness you don't have an American accent. I'm only joking. <laughs> <laughs> only joking. Uh, you, you also set up the RAAF Weapons School. How did that eventuate? Uh, in 19, what was it, 72, uh, I was posted to a, a ground course in the UK uh, called a Weapons Employment Course, and the idea of this was to try and, and teach you some of the intricacies of weapon effort planning, as we call it. That is, a bomb is not just a bomb. I mean, you don't use two bombs if you can use one. So trying to analyse the effectiveness of weapons and how to use them is uh, an important function of the Royal Australian Air Force. And so we used to train some of our pilots in those skills. And we trained them in the UK. We didn't have that capability ourselves. And so I did my training in 72 when I came back after exchange and a few other things, and uh, I got promoted, I was then sent to SAR to set up our own weapons employment course uh, down at East Sale. So it was basically duplicating a capability that they had in the UK and bringing it within the Royal Australian Air Force. Yeah. Comparatively, how does it compare to the United States when you're working in the United Kingdom with the RAF? Uh, did, look, I've got immense respect for both of those air forces. I mean, why wouldn't you? The, uh, they have a different. They have got a completely different style. But if you have a look at them over the, uh, let's face it, over the conflicts of the last century, uh, they've got incredible pedigree, both of them. And uh, it was impossible not to learn from how other countries, other cultures, go ahead and tackle the same task as, as you do. And uh, you learn different things. I, you know, I, love, the, uh, I, I love the Brits, it's sort of irreverence, which mirrored our irreverence. Americans <laughs> aren't near as irreverent as we are. And uh, you, you just learn these sorts of things. And 
But then you can introduce a bit of irreverence to the Americans. I mean, when you call, the first time I called an American uh, uh, bastard, I said, now listen, you bastard, what are you doing? So he said, hang on, hang on. You can't call me a bastard. I said, no, 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 that's an Australian way of saying mate. <laughs> so, but a POM would never have any trouble understanding that. So uh, we, we, we gave as good as we got and we learned from everybody and I think that's an Australian thing. We're not afraid to learn from anybody if they've got something to teach us. Isn't the English language an amazing thing, particularly when used by Australians? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the Americans could... I mean, the ones I got to know learnt, but they, it, it perplexed them, put it that way. It perplexed yeah, thank, God, thank God for the RAF. Uh, the RAAF, I should say. You are promoted to wing commander. How much of an experience was that for you, and what did it involve you becoming? Well, I'd, you know, I'd now been in a ground job at, at, at Sale. Well, I still flew there, but then... I'd go and do staff college in 1980 and then got promoted to wing commander. So now I have get, I guess I've got to pay for the good deals a little bit now, and which means I've got to do some time working behind a desk. But I was incredibly fortunate that the job that I got uh, was as a part of the project to acquire the Hornet aircraft, which was, you know, it, it was groundbreaking, it was new, there was no precedent for it. Uh, great team of civilians and military, all disciplines, uh, all with one aim of getting that aircraft to Australia in the way we wanted it, on time and on budget. And uh, so that was a great job for me. I loved it. Loved every moment. In fact, you, in fact, uh, were the first <laughs> operational Hornet squadron. Yours. Yeah, well, you know, that was, if you like, one of the lovely things about it, I suppose. You know, you sit there and think, now, when we actually get this aircraft, boy, I hope I get a chance to fly it, you know. I mean, it's no lay-down Mazaire. And I, I was fortunate after four years, the first operational squadron, well, we'd already had the training squadron set up, and, uh, you know, when the postings came out at the end of whatever it was, 1985, I was down to be the new CEO. I just said to myself, "You bloody beauty!" <laughs> so, of all of all of the aircraft you have flown, what's your favourite and why? I'd have to say the Hornet, to be honest with you, because uh, it was a, an evolution. You know, from this as a fighter, uh, it was a, a fourth generation fighter. The Sabre was a second generation fighter. The Mirage was a third. So, it was a jump up all the way along the line and now a lot of the things that you missed if you like on the Mirage or the Sabre you now had to use and so it was like uh, you've done all this now we're going to add a little bit more capability and see see how you handle it and uh, the, the Hornet was challenging but it made you smile you know because yeah. it it worked it was exciting <clears throat> you could never ever uh, explore its complete capability uh, because with software you can keep multiplying it. I, I loved it. And also, you know, being able to set up a squadron with your own troops, you know, we had about 200 troops, uh, 15, 16 pilots and all the rest of it. Uh, that was what we dreamt of as pilots in the Air Force, becoming a CEO of your own squadron. And for me, to be able to do it on a brand new aircraft that everybody yeah. else wanted to fly was, uh, you know, you've you got to be kidding me, but it was great. Yeah, they keep on bumping you up the officer chain, 88 it is, 
our bicentennial year and they've bumped you up to group captain. <laughs> yeah, I think they, they must have run out of names or something or other. But then I was, once again, I, you know, I went uh, back and ran the project for a while. And uh, um, But I guess my flying days at that stage were really uh, numbered in the Air Force. So, uh, But once again, I was very lucky. Great job. Enjoyed the and hell out of it. Command at Tyndall, what was that like? Uh, well, as you're probably aware, it was a brand new base back in those days. The very first commander of the base I took over from him. Uh, it was out in the middle of nowhere. It was uh, wild. Uh, there was no natural support. But once again, we had a lot of people living on that base. All of them wanted to be there. And it had a touch of distinctiveness to it, I suppose, that made it really exciting. It was like frontier land in many ways. We were building a raft base out of very little. Uh, we had a squadron of hornets there. It was the culmination of so many things. Uh, and the Air Force had, in its wisdom, decided that we needed a fully operational base there. It was a great honour to have that job, and I met some wonderful people there. Yeah. Mate. The Royal Australian Air Force has now been here 100 years, and of that 100 years, you served 30.5 years in it. So you pretty much have a, a major role in creating what is one of the finest air forces in the world. And I want to thank you so much for your service, and you're a remarkable Australian. Well done, sir, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Gareth. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.